Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Appreciate our musicians and uh, vocalists. And I we just mentioned something to you that maybe you know we don't really, ever really have said this, but um, the music that we craft for these services are, are very thoughtfully provided for, particularly the songs that we use at the end. And I know there are times that you, people have to leave or they step out, and sometimes in other services I know those are more filler songs. They aren't for us. They're actually an integral part of the message. And so I would just encourage you to, to A, not leave early, but B, to um, listen to those songs and let them realize that they're actually part of the message as we continue on. We've been in a series entitled, Are We There Yet? It's a study in the book of Exodus. And um, today we're going to be talking about faith without straw. Uh, Before we get into this today, um, I want to take a moment and acknowledge a current event. If you've been following the news at all, the last 48 hours or so, the state of Israel has been the subject of some pretty horrific uh, violence. And they're going to respond to that, and it's it's going to be messy. Um, That's a political issue. That's not my issue. What I want to draw attention to is um, I do not make the mistake of, of saying that biblical Israel is the current state of Israel. They aren't. They're separate entities. Having said that, though, there is something about Israel as a nation, as a people still, that um, I think has a, a special interest as far as God is concerned. Again, not the point today. Here's the point I want to make. Why is it, you have to ask yourself, that a people group have been so persecuted by so many different uh, political entities and structures over millennia of time now. Why is it that that people group has been so persecuted? Why is it that today you have a nation, and I don't know of any place in history this has ever happened, ever, that a nation has been dispersed from its homeland and dismantled only 2,000 years later to come back together to the same place with the same language, with the same uh, um, basic culture and establish itself again. No other nation has ever done that before. Um, I think there's something about uh, the Jewish people as God's chosen people. It doesn't make them perfect, but there is something about that. And I think there's an evil that's tried to crush and destroy that and, and has been vengeful for millennia. And um, I would just draw your attention to that. It's a, an anomaly in, within history and within politics. And I think adds a little greater depth to the conversation that we're about here to have here um, this morning. Anti-Semitism is evil. All ethnic prejudice is. But it's particularly true here because I think there's a spiritual undertone behind this. And I would just present that to you. So as we dive in today as to are you there yet? Faith without straw, let us pray. Father, we come before you. We ask, Lord, that you'd illuminate your scripture, that you'd anoint our ears and our eyes to receive, our minds, our hearts, 
And Lord, I do pray right now for the people of Israel. I pray, Lord, that there'd be a resolution um, and an end to this violence. We commit these things into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we have been looking at the idea of Moses, and the last conversation we had is Moses had been 40 years uh, in Egypt, even though he was Hebrew originally, and still was. He was raised in an Egyptian household, Pharaoh's household. If we're to accept Josephus, an ancient Jewish historian, um, not only was he raised there, but at one point in time, and it would have been understandable if he's in the household up to 40, he would have definitely seen military campaigns, and allegedly actually uh, was victorious against the Ethiopians on behalf of the Egyptians. If Josephus is to believe, be believed, he was actually the heir to the throne of Egypt. Um, either way, he was deeply entrenched in what was the dominant culture of its time. Commits a murder, uh, leaves. Now he's then 40 years in the desert. Uh, any confidence, any arrogance he had had long ago seeped out. And as we said last week, the man who left Egypt is not the same man who's now returning. Uh, in Acts, we know that we are told that he was eloquent of speech and powerful, but he tells God several times, I'm not any longer. So either the confidence has drained out of him, or uh, another explanation is that he was not as competent in, in Hebrew as he would have been in Egyptian, and there was a language dysfunction of some type there. But I think it's far more likely that the confidence was just out of him. He's now at a point where God can use him, and he's encountered God. He's on his way there. Uh, we left it with Zipporah, his wife, Twitterer, which is her actual name, um, and them having a little bit of a conversation before he crosses into uh, um, Egypt. Um, before that actually occurs, though, we find that there's a passage in Exodus chapter 4, verse 27, 28. The Lord says to Aaron, who is the older brother of Moses, um, says, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he goes and meets Moses on the mountain of God, um, kisses him, and Moses and Aaron, they exchange all the information, and, and he tells them all the different signs that had commanded him to perform. So unlike the Prince of Egypt cartoon musical, um, he's not a Jeffrey Goldblum, uh, era, you know, kind of distant, harsh guy. He is actually a partner very early on with Moses and very much a participant in what's taking place. They go on in Exodus chapter 4, verse 29. Moses and Aaron brought together. They do this together as partners. All the elders of the Israelites, all the rulers of the Israelites. And Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. Now, this is important. They did some type of signs, whether it was the whole snake stick thing again or whatever signs, but they did something that was powerful that, that the people, two things here, they believed they believed. In that moment of time, they believed that God cared about them, that he existed, and that they were important to him. Goes on, though, and says, when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. So they not only believed, but they worshiped, or they praised God in the midst of that time. This is a really important issue. Now, we also have to remember, though, and recall that the Israelites had been soaked in Egyptian theology, a hundred gods, in the dominant culture of that time. Um, in the same way, we exist in that same element of having the dominant culture of our time wash over us. And so, in the same way that they were drawn to concepts and beliefs that they really should not have been drawn to, so are we. In the same way that, that we are fed certain lies and misperceptions, they had been fed certain lies and misperceptions. In many ways, they were far from God. But he was going to begin the process of drawing them to himself. 
And it's a process to come out of the dominant culture and to begin to understand the things of God and to begin to trust God, especially in very difficult situations and challenging moments. Exodus chapter 5, we enter into the chapter. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go. We know that line. So that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Wait a minute. What's happening here? Um, They're just asking for a festival. They're not asking for full release. They started off with just a small, simple request. Now, he's approaching Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is not the public servant that we would know such as they are today. Um, everybody served Pharaoh. He didn't serve anybody. Um, he was omnipotent in, in the views of the people. In fact, the Pharaohs were viewed as the children of the sun, S-U-N. Uh, they would be worshipped as gods alongside the other gods. They would enter in the temples, and as those gods are being worshipped, they would also worship Pharaoh in the same way. Uh, this is a powerful thing. Other rulers did the same thing. Caesar was worshipped as God at one point and others. But nobody quite liked Pharaoh because the history was so long and so deep. And so now you're approaching a godlike figure with all the political power of the dominant culture of its time. It's no wonder that, that Moses was fearful. But there was one other aspect Moses would have had that nobody else would have had in that approach. See, he had lived in the palace. He'd been in those situations. And as much as he knew all the theology that was surrounding it, he also knew personally and directly that Pharaoh was no God. He would have known that he was a man. He would have known that in a way that nobody else of that time period would have known. So they start off with a simple request. Let's just take a festival. Just take a three-day break. Something simple. Pharaoh replies in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, Who is the Lord? that I should obey him and let Israel go. Very telling phrase next. I do not know the Lord. I'll not let Israel go. I, I have no idea this God you're talking about. Either way, I'm a God, and I don't recognize this God, so hey, my God trumps your God. I have no idea who you're talking about. There's an ignorance in Pharaoh um, as to exactly who he's dealing with. So he refuses to let Israel go. Um, they try to bring this off a little bit more, but, but it doesn't happen. And so um, after Moses and Aaron uh, is, is, are, are gone, then he, he grabs the people and pulls them in. He gets the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. And in Exodus chapter 5, verses 7 and 9, he says, look, you're no longer to supply the people, the, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they're crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make them work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. So they're not going to provide straw. They're not going to reduce the quota. They want them to keep working. And they want them to pay, quote, no attention to to lies. The key thing about this right now is, for purposes, is the brick issue. They're no longer going to provide straw. So up until that time, they would have gathered a type of mud or clay type thing, and they also would have had a supply of straw there. They would have mixed those things together to form a, 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 a thing that would have held on in the midst of anything else they're going to form. We know that these bricks were central to the creation of what was going on in Egypt at that time. We have a lot of evidence that even today you will see homes and houses made out of this same style of brick. The straw was worked into it 
to provide some structure and some flexibility. It also had an acidic quality that made the bricks stronger. So structurally, with its structure, it makes it stronger, but then as it decomposes, it passes out this, um, this type of acid that would actually make the whole thing stronger. They would then take it and not bake it like some thing would be done. They would put it out in the sun and let it be dried, and then they'd use this to construct their homes and their places. Um, this is a, an example of some of the bricks uh, of what they would have had. They would have had wood molds, and so they would have sat down there, they would have mixed up the, the, the mud or a clay almost type structure, put the straw into it, put it into wooden molds, and then they would have dried in the sun, popped it out and let this dry, and then they would have used this for the construction of homes. It was the number one uh, usage for commercial, no, not the pyramids and all that stuff. Those are huge chunks of granite or limestone or other stones that would have been used, but way too expensive for standard housing and for commercial buildings. This is what they would have used. And if you were a simple person, you'd have a home constructed out of this, and on the, inside, on the outside, you would have whitewashed it to reflect somewhat of the sun's heat a bit. If you're a wealthy person, you would have whitewashed the outside and you would have painted the inside and had, you know, uh, illustrations, uh, their, their version of a wallpaper of some type of animals or different things on the interior. But this would have been used for all commercial buildings as well as for the others. For a, um, if you click this next one here a little bit, this would be a standard house. It would have had those little narrow windows to keep the heat in or the cold in, depending on the time of the year. Um, there would have been a common room and then a sleeping room. And then the steps upstairs would be a place that if it gets cool at night that you could just chill out um, on a hot day rather when it's low down below. You don't want to be in that enclosed area with very little ventilation. You go up top and you could have your meal or you could sleep if you need to if it's really hot in, in, the, in the summertime setting. This, the whole economy of Egypt depended, and the construction economy depended on these bricks. Uh, and they didn't just build low-level ones, they actually built multi-level homes, uh, three, four stories sometimes on occasions. They'd be stacked up on top itself. So this whole idea of the, of the, the usage of the clay and the construction of these bricks would have been a critical thing. But as you've heard said several times in this conversation so far, um, it was with straw. If you have bricks made just out of mud or just out of clay, they will break down. Even the rain can dissolve them. And so it was very important to have the straw. Now, up until this time, the straw was provided to them. But now they're told, no, the straw isn't going to be provided for them any further. So the slave drivers go out. They tell the people this. You have to go get your own. So now what that means is, I'm not sitting here in my mud pile. Now I have to get up and I have to go and I have to go find a bunch of straw somewhere and still them, bring them and get stacks of it here. I keep going. Anyway. So it says in the scripture that the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. They, they scattered everywhere in order to get the item that was needed. The quota is still the same. When they don't make the quota, there's beatings that happen. Uh, there's a, a little corner, um, Plumbrook and Dodge Park. There's a subdivision there now. But um, in the previous century, there was a fence yard called Master Fence Company that was there. I know because I worked for that company for two years as a college student. 
they would deliver 90-pound bales of, of, of wire off a truck, hundreds, and I would unload those things in the hot sun and stack them over. If I didn't get them all done, then the overseer would hit me with a whip once or twice. And, and <laughs> it wasn't quite that bad, but the best job I had was, was being able to make the gates. We made fences and gates, and so I'd have to bend the piping around and then stretch the wire across and using clips to clip it in place. And on the side of these gates were the names of the, of the uh, developing community here that, at that time with the names of the streets. And it's interesting, to this day, I'll go on a street, and I'm like, I've never been on this street, but the name's familiar to me, and I realize, oh, I made a gate somewhere on this street. And then I roam around people's backyards and poke until I find the gate, and <laughs> they call the police, and it's been a long history. Gates, in the summertime, in the sun, um, I'd have the piping, and I'd stretch and bend that. I'd have the wire, but every once in a while, I'd run out of clips. They're supposed to provide me with clips, but without that, I'd have to go down and roam around the place until I could find my own and bring it back. It delayed things, and yet I still was supposed to make a certain number of things. I identify with these guys. They're supposed to make so many bricks, but without the clay, it won't form right, so I've got to now run around. It, it caused an issue for them and a pain for them that that translated into direct issues of violence upon them. As a result, they go to um, Pharaoh and they engage him and, and they say, hey, um, we have to do all this, but, but we can't do it. It's, it's not our fault. It's the people that are overseeing us. They're not doing what needs to be done. And he's like, no, you're lazy. It's you. You're the ones that are at fault. Go back and do what you're supposed to do. And then they realize it says that they were in trouble when they were told you are not to reduce the number of bricks required. The same quote is to be done. Exodus chapter 5, verse 20 picks up the thing. When they left Pharaoh, they find Moses and Aaron waiting. That wasn't an accident. Moses and Aaron want to know what the outcome of the story is, what's going on, so they're hanging around. So to meet them, and they said, they said to Aaron, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. See what they're saying. May the Lord look on you. In other words, what you came up with from God wasn't from God at all. May God judge you because now we have a problem. He looks on us. We're obnoxious to Pharaoh. How many of you have ever heard of something called the Stockholm Syndrome? It was originally, I think, an event that happened over in that country. Some people were held hostage, and later the psychologists and police psychologists found an interesting development that at one point in time, the hostages began to identify with the ones who took them hostage. They began to see them as having a reason and a purpose, and they began to defend them and justify things. And it was a very strange phenomenon. The reason why it was an issue of, of self-survival. They wanted to try to make themselves as human and connected with these people and not believe that they were going to kill them or, or, or hurt them in some way. And that term now has entered into other areas of abusive relationships. We see marriages or, or dating relationships that are somewhat of a Stockholm Syndrome. This person is being abusive, but we don't believe it. No, they're really the best person. I can't face the fact that they're really a hateful person or that they might kill me or might hurt me because I can't handle that mentally or it could threaten me physically. These people are leaving now and saying, you have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh. Clue in, guys. You were always obnoxious to Pharaoh. He thinks you guys are dirt. We don't want to believe that because he's kind of a God to us and a figure to us and a father figure. Not only that, but it threatens our lives to believe that. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. You've made us obnoxious. He was always obnoxious. You were always obnoxious to him. They're trapped not only by the dominant culture, not only by a foreign theology of many gods, not only with a slave mentality, but they're trapped under this misplaced sense of authority. 
They turn and Moses and Aaron and they're now twisted. Pharaoh's saying, don't have them listen to this lies, but now it's lies they're listening to. You're wrong, Moses and Aaron. Pharaoh's the good guy. It goes on in the 22nd and 23rd verse of Exodus chapter 5. Moses returns to the Lord. Now this is a good thing here. Make note of this. When you're not sure what's going on or when you're confused or when you're, you find your faith struggling or other issues, the, the best, the first thing you should do is return to the Lord. Inquire of him. David, that's one of the top things of David. He ends up in a lot of different situations, but you see David always, King David always inquires of the Lord. He always says, what's going on here? Let that be your first thing. Not the self-help books, not the psychologists, not the audience. I mean, those are all good things to help and, and can benefit. But turn to God on this. He says, why, Lord, have you brought trouble on these people? Is this why you sent me ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name? He's brought trouble on these people. And I love this line. And you've not rescued your people at all. Like his expectation is that this was going to happen right away. And yet God had made clear that it wasn't going to happen right away. He made clear that there was going to be um, a, a sequence of events that had to take place in order to have this happen. But he wants it done now. He assumed the power would be overwhelming now and a resolution. I won't put up Exodus chapter 6, beginning portion, but just know that the Lord responds to Moses' inquiry and he gives him a new revelation of who he is. He restates the I am again and gives him a fresh awareness. But then he does something really special. And we'll explore this more next week. But I want to give you a precursor. This is something that is going to echo for millennia, and it's still something integrated into Jewish practice today. Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 8, he says this, Therefore say to the Israelites, say, I am the Lord. And then this, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I'll bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and I'll give you as a possession. I am the Lord. Those four statements, I'll bring you out. I will free you from being slaves. I will redeem you. I will take you as my own people and I'll be your God are four aspects that are an integral part of the Passover meal that we'll talk about a bit next week that is celebrated through Judaism and eventually becomes the Last Supper of Christ. And it was accompanied by four glasses of wine. Yes, the Passover was a really fun event. Okay. <laughs> he reads this into them at the time. I'll bring you out. I'll free you. I'll redeem you. Take you as my own people. But not yet. You're going to have to trust me on this one. Moses reports this to the Israelites. And they jumped for joy. And they said, sure, we'll just go ahead and make bricks without straw. It'll be great. It'll be wonderful. Uh, it says, they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. They didn't listen. Ezekiel, in the 20th chapter, tells us one of the reasons why God was small in their eyes, that they had, they had fallen under the thrall of the Egyptian gods. They, they'd been caught with this dominant culture. They'd been trapped into a very different type of thinking. And the idea of breaking free of that and, 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 and understanding 
the God of their fathers who had an intimate relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, now wanting an intimate relationship with them was one step too far. At one point, they believed, and they worshiped and praised. But then when it didn't happen right away, One of the things we tell people that get baptized, we kind of warn them, hey, you're taking a certain step spiritually, and a lot of times right after this, you're going to find actually a tougher time rather than a greater time sometimes because the enemy comes against us in those moments to try to break our faith, to try to challenge what we believe and the very identity of who we are. Later, it was to be generations later that one of these Jewish people were to write in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And it opens up a whole chapter that talks about the faith of previous um, um, Hebrews and Jews of whom Moses and these people are part of. They're in that story, but they're not there yet. Faith is confidence in what we hope for. Assurance about what we don't see. We don't have it yet. We're going to make bricks and we have to do it without straw, but we're still going to have this faith and confidence. It was generations after this time that we're talking about in, in, in Exodus that, that one of the greatest of, of the Jewish kings was going to come along in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 and, and tell us to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll make straight your paths, but trust in the Lord. And the people would have learned that. And if we're wise, we learn that. Trust in the Lord. Don't lean on our own understanding. Have faith, even if we have no straw. Have faith. It was to be generations further on that Paul, a Jewish man, would have come in the book of Romans and he, he would have said, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ in whom we have gained access by faith and this grace in whom we now stand. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now he says this, chapter five, verses three, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. We glory in our sufferings. We're American. We don't suffer. We're American. We don't believe in pain. That's what drugs are for. I go to the hospital and they give me a little smiley face, a real smiley one, then kind of a grimace, and then darker and darker until I'm really, and I'm told to look at one of those charts between one through 10. What is my pain? And if the nurse is really kind to me, she'll say, say the 10, or we won't give you anything. Oh, it's a 10. I'm feeling a 10. And then they give us something we don't feel anything anymore because we have a right to not feel pain. That's why the drugs flood into our country right now. We can blame China and Mexico and Colombia and everything we want, but we have a hunger for them. We don't want to feel pain. But the Scripture's telling us here that there's glory in our sufferings, that there's not a needlessness behind it because you know that suffering produces What? perseverance. These people were still soaked in Egyptian theology, soaked in Egyptian culture, soaked in the thinking of slaves, captive both in mind and body and spirit to Pharaoh. 
They were not ready to persevere, but God was going to walk them through the process. We glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance, character. And character, what? Hope. Faith ultimately leads to hope. But it begins here. We are a people immersed in a dominant culture. We are pressed to worship many things that are not God. We're in an extremely confusing time. It was intended to be that way, to mislead and confuse us with lies. In many ways, we're trying to have faith without the seeming straw or things to hold structure to it, without things that make it easier to hold on to. And the bricks of our faith just melt in the rain and don't hold together. Faith that is not rooted in Christ and an understanding of Scripture falls away. But faith that is rooted in Christ, that is rooted in Scripture, and we are the most biblically ignorant people of our nation, of our people in our time. We're striving to have faith without the straw that's necessary. There's a moment in time that we find in the New Testament that Jesus encounters someone This is the final thing I want to share with you this morning. We find that in chapter 9 of Mark, they came to the other disciples. There's a large crowd around them, and teachers of the law were arguing with them. And as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet them. He says, what are you guys arguing about? So he comes up to them. They're all arguing and scrapping about. He says, what are you guys arguing about? The man in the crowd answers. He says, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes at his teeth, becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How, how shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Notice that. We're going to bring him to Jesus. It's going to be all good now, right? It's, it's going to be all good. No, he immediately, when confirmed by Jesus, contorts the kid. It's worse now being brought to Jesus. The initial thing is worse. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus' reply is kind of cold. If you can? You doubting me? If I can? (laughs) Everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. It's a pitiful statement. I do believe. I I do. Help me my unbelief. He wants to express faith, but at the same time he wants to be genuine. You know, I, I do believe. Help me to overcome my unbelief. My, my faith, in, in essence, he's saying, is far from perfect. I may not have enough faith. If my faith is not enough, then please help me to have enough. One translation puts it this way. I do have faith. Please help me to have even more. All the things I've done seem to just melt away. I can't seem to hold on. It gets worse and heavier. I do have a faith, but it's, it's, it's melting away. It's, it, help me have the faith I need. 
When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit, you deaf and mute spirit. He said, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and he came out, and the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. The people of Israel had a spirit that was not of God. It had blinded them, it had held them captive, it had burdened them. A dominant culture had overwhelmed them, and they couldn't see beyond that. They are no different than we are today. The one difference perhaps for us today is that we have the Scripture. We have their experiences. We know what they walk through. We have items that even if we feel like our faith is just there and there's no straw, we're scattered. We may be scattered, but we're not alone. And that we can always inquire of God and come to Him. And that in whatever situation we have, that we can go back what the Jews did not do to that moment when they first heard from God through Aaron and through Moses, and they believed and they worshipped. They were still trying to understand how to trust God. And that was a journey he was going to take them on. I don't know what circumstances surround you today. I know the ones that challenge my belief and that have me often scattered and feeling alone. Add to my workload and pressure I feel like I don't have the resources and it's difficult to have the faith without the straw. It's in moments like that that we're supposed to turn to God. Acknowledge, Lord, I do have faith, but help me because in this specific moment, I don't have enough. I want to trust you that you're doing something in this to shape me, to help those around me but it seems like as the rain falls and I sit here in the mud pit of my moment, it's in that moment that you go back to when you first heard the word of God. It's in those muddy, dark, broken moments that you go back to where you first heard God. It's in those moments that you turn to him and you lean into him. And you close out the rest of the lies and you focus on Christ. And it, it has to be as simple as, Lord, I have faith. I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. Father, I, I don't know the homes represented here today, either present in this room or in the atrium or streamed around the country right now, but you do. I don't know which individuals are feeling scattered and lost, overwhelmed without the resources they need. I don't know how many of us had this expectation of you that, that somehow didn't quite work out yet and, and we find ourselves more heavily burdened at a time we thought we'd see relief, but you see each and every one. This morning, Father, this morning, we would return to that moment when we first heard your voice and we fell down and worshiped. Lord, this morning, as we seek to have faith without straw, as we seek to have belief in you without the resources, it seems with things coming against us, let us realize this morning that just the simple authentic aspect of coming before your face, seeking you out and saying, Lord, we believe. Help us.
our unbelief, that you would meet with us. And so, Lord, this morning, this moment, this hour, we wait upon you. The Israelites were soaked in the dominant culture of the time. They'd been listening to lies so long and so much bondage mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, that it was hard for them to see God, let alone trust him. But he was beginning to take them on a journey, a journey that would transform them from a, from a, a family of slaves to a nation of people pursuing the things of God. And in that time, he was going to shape their character. He was going to define them as a nation. And he was going to form a relationship with them that would last for generations. And Pharaoh, he didn't know God. <laughs> to meet him. And there will be a contest in ten parts. And Pharaoh, who thinks he's God, is going to lose every single one. There'll be those available up front here if you'd like to come forward for prayer following this service. Father, we come before you, and again, I would lift up all who feel today that they are scattered and alone to have them recognize that you see them wherever they are. For those, Lord, who have struggled still to believe or to praise that this morning your Holy Spirit would infuse them with strength. And Father, for those of us that still struggle in our faith, and are honest with you about it, realizing that we can be open with you, that in our authenticity, you'll also meet us and strengthen us in that faith. Guide us, Lord, as we continue to study these things, Lord God. We lay them before your feet. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen.